a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move. Down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 83 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guys say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve in the business. I was chatting with one of my good friends in the broadcasting business, and he listens to this podcast, and he suggested that I take a couple minutes before each podcast and just kind of update everybody on what is going on in my broadcasting career. And my initial thought was, who the heck cares? They are listening to this for the guest, but he convinced me to at least try this, so I'm going to. And I'm just going to give you a little update on what's been a really strange month in my broadcasting life. Starting the month, I was scheduled to do nine play-by-play basketball games and one color commentary game. Because of a whole bunch of different factors, I ended up doing five games of play-by-play and two of color commentary. One of them got snowed out. The rescheduled game of that same game got snowed out. One game... I was ready to go, but for whatever reason, a board op called in sick or something, and they weren't able to get a replacement. So I ended up doing color commentary on another game for our station. One game, I didn't really get a reason. I was just told that the Division Three college basketball game that I was initially scheduled to cover was just not going to happen. So I had plenty of notice. It wasn't a big deal, but instead of doing nine games and one game of color commentary, I got five and two color commentary, and it feels weird because I'm used to doing five to eight games a week, depending on the week this time of year, and in some ways it's been nice. I've been able to spend some time at home, spend some time with my wife, but at the same time, uh, I didn't move here to to do five games a month of play-by-play, and it's just a weird coincidence. It's nothing wrong that happened. It's just a lot of bad luck and weird circumstances. So, yeah, that's been my month covering basketball. February will be different, obviously, as just about everybody knows. That's the stretch run of both small college and high school basketball, and I expect there to be a lot of freelance work. I'm pretty sure I'm going to get the chance to do a hockey game at some point, too. I'm really looking forward to that I'll let you know how it goes when the time comes. But, yeah, that's what's going on. It's expected to be in the negative 50-degree temperatures over the next couple days, so I'm questioning my sanity moving to uh, the Twin Cities instead of Phoenix, Miami, or anywhere south of the Mason-Dixon line that wouldn't have negative temperatures. But, you know what, we made our choice, and it's time to just deal with it and tough out those cold days and deal with it. This week I'm happy to be chatting with John Sadak of Westwood One and CBS Sports. He also spent time at ESPN and called games at the same time for both Princeton and Delaware. John, thanks for making time today and welcome to the show. Oh, you've got it. Thank you for having me. At what point did you decide you wanted to go into broadcasting? Did you always know or were you a late bloomer? Uh, I found it on the edge of making my college decision. I was uh, a math and science nerd. Uh, my only varsity letter in high school was for math team. And I always thought I'd get into engineering. Uh, and then I thought astrophysics. And the more I researched it, the more I realized I'd have to get a terminal degree. I'd have to get a doctorate. I'd be in college until I'm in my mid to late 20s. I'd come out with mountains of debt, even with financial assistance. And I'd probably have to fundraise, basically sell and or teach, uh, and, and neither of those interested me. So I, I was in a bit of a conundrum. I was uh, going into my senior year in high school. And I really didn't know at that point then what I wanted to do. Uh, so I did a presentation for my AP history class my senior year on race relation in 20th century America. 
and whether changes in sport influenced society or if they were reflections of changes going on in America. Did Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier change things, or was it a mirror image of what was happening? And, of course, there's no real answer to that. They're entirely interconnected. Uh, but during my research, uh, there was an SI when Arthur Ashe was named Sportsman of the Year. That was a big crux of, of the research for my presentation. In that same issue was this giant pullout on ESPN Sports Center. And it included all these sidebars on every job behind the scenes and one on the life of a production assistant, which, as you know, it's lowest rung on the totem pole. You make no money. You work all the hours. You do all the work. And that's when it crystallized for me. And I said, I could do that. And I always thought about, you know, working in sports in some way, but it seemed so far-fetched. The, the numbers, the odds were, were so poor. And then I thought, well, if I could get in doing something like that, then I could move up and I'd want to be on the air. But if I wasn't, reading about the life of a producer or a director, or that appealed to me too. Uh, so that's when I decided I want to work in sports broadcasting. I want to be on the air. But if I don't get on the air, I'd just love to be in sports in some way. Let's go backwards here as you self-describe yourself as a math nerd. With many interests like music or sports, you can still practice those hobbies on the side. Do you stay involved in astrophysics in your spare time? Uh, I do still read, and the Internet's fantastic. Uh, I, I do still read literature you know, relevant to the industry now and then. Um, I, I would not in any way declare myself on the same plane as, as people who actually practice it. Uh, but I, I do geek out and enjoy a, a lot of science-related material, um, and that's where you know, NASA's advances social media-wise with trying to get its own message out has, has been fantastic. Um, but to be honest, the way that my life is structured right now, uh, I would say 75% of my time is usually related to prepping for a game in some way, and the rest of it I try to soak up as much family time as I can. Do you own a telescope? Uh, no, no, I, I don't think any uh, form of uh, residential effort along those lines would yield all that much compared to what you can glean from you know, living it vicariously through the Internet. Fair enough. Just a good pair of binoculars gets the trick done for your job now. Pretty much get the Bushnells out the wide, 4 by 30 When we were trying to schedule this interview, it was a little tricky because you draw strict boundaries between work time and family time. I've been married for a year and a half, no kids yet, but I'm still trying to figure out where to draw those boundaries. How did you come up with yours? Uh, well, it's something that changes a lot over the course of time. You know, to be honest, uh, a lot of sacrifices had to be made for years. You know, I, I lost a, a handful of serious relationships over this lifestyle. Um, you know, I had significant others that said they got it, and then the life began, and six months, a year in, you're going to miss Christmas. You're not coming to the family party. You're not going to the wedding. No, I got a game. I have to work. I have to travel. I can't say no, especially early in your career. You have to agree to everything. Uh, and uh, the day our daughter was born, uh, we have one child. She's now six. She's in kindergarten. Uh, the day she was born, I was offered one of the bigger jobs I've had, a play-by-play guy for the Yankees AAA team in Scranton. And I left it up to my wife. I said, you tell me. You just gave birth to our child. You tell me not to take it, to stay here near your family, and I'll do it. And she said, no, you should take this. It's good for your career. And I moved there by myself. I lived in a one-bedroom apartment. I saw my daughter when I could. I got back down occasionally, but we were opening a brand-new stadium. I was also the PR guy for the team. Uh, there was a new general manager. There was a, a lot of new people in the front office. And we had to work weekends in the off season. Plus, I was doing games. I was working football and basketball and soccer. And uh, I missed a lot of her first year. I missed a lot of her first few years. Uh, my wife and daughter moved up after I was there for a year. We rented a house. We sold our home. My wife quit her full-time job. She was there for a year, and she was grossly unhappy. Um, she had never really been away from home for an extended span of time. I was still away a lot. Uh, the winter is a lot rougher, even though it was only three hours north. It's a lot more snow and it's a lot colder. There aren't many activities in that time of year. And uh, so we moved them back down three hours south, uh, back to Delaware from Scranton. So she could be around the corner from her sister, 15 minutes from her mom and dad. And during baseball season, I'd see them when I could. I was working 
between 180 to sometimes as many as 230 some odd events a year. Um, so after I left baseball and I left minor league baseball, uh, that lifestyle began to be too much. Uh, I, I did it for five more years after my daughter was born. And I said, and now she's getting to a point she recognizes I'm not there. She gets upset. Um, and I'm ruining my relationship with my child. So something had to give. And I, the national work pays better. It's better career-wise. It allows us to live where we want to live. Uh, so I gave up minor league baseball, still with the hope that major league baseball could come down the road. Uh, but it's it's really only been since the fall of uh, a little more than a year ago when I left baseball that I, I said, now that I'm home, when I am home, I need to take advantage of that because even without the baseball, you and I were just talking before we came on the podcast. I fly to Chicago this Friday. Uh, I'll be back uh, early Christmas Eve morning, probably around 2 a.m. Uh, there have been many times I've come in at 6 a.m. on Christmas morning, uh, beating my child's wake up by 10 minutes for her to open her gifts because I'm working a game somewhere. I'll be home for two days. I'll see as many family members as I can, and I'll fly to Idaho. I'll be gone for three days. I'll be back for two days, and I'll fly again. Uh, and I pretty much won't be home more than 36 to 48 hours consecutively for three months. Uh, so the, the time when I can take advantage and be with them as much as possible, I, I try to knowing what's coming over the next three, four months. I certainly appreciate you making time this afternoon. It wasn't very long ago that you gave up your minor league baseball job. Was that this fall? Uh, it was fall of last year, of 2017. Okay. How difficult the decision was that, knowing you could have been on the cusp, potentially, of a major league gig? Uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I hemmed and hawed over that for years. So to be honest, after the first year I was there, I, I debated, do I leave it? Uh, because I made enough money with the national work that we would be solvent financially and I could actually open up the ability to work some other gigs. And minor league baseball, no matter how plumb, unless you're in a sales-related position where you're killing it, you are not making very much money. Uh, I, I debated that annually, and I kept holding on and holding on and holding on. And, and once I saw uh, you know, my daughter, I spoke with her. We hosted the AAA National Championship game that September. Uh, I hadn't been home for basically two and a half weeks. Uh, the Rail Riders uh, did not make the finals that year. Uh, they did make the International League finals, but we had uh, the, the PCL and IL champion at our ballpark. Uh, early the next morning, I was back home in Delaware for the first time, and it was like 24 days, and uh, I took my daughter to school that morning. When I dropped her off, she looked at me, and she grabbed me by each cheek with her hands, and she said, Daddy, you need to be home more. And uh, yeah, that, that killed me. That was, that, was, that was really hard, and uh, th- I, I knew that. I was I was already leaning toward it anyway. I was building toward that, and as soon as she said that, there there was no hesitation. Thanks for the honesty on that answer. Out of college at Rowan University, what was the first break you got to get into professional sports casting? Ah, uh, there were a ton. Um, so the the very first job I ever had was with 1450 WILM News Radio. Uh, there was a, a posting on the board at the college radio station, and uh, I gave them a call and. I wound up being the overnight producer, uh, which basically meant I played a handful of local commercials during syndicated programming. I read the weather once an hour, uh, and eventually that led to doing some fill-in weekend stuff, uh, sports anchor, fill-in reporter at some local games. Uh, and that, that was just by, you know, circumstance of seeing the opening and, and applying for it. Uh, but I, I got a bunch of little breaks right out of college, uh, I worked as a producer at WOBM Radio doing Lakewood Blue Claws games. Uh, the station was near my hometown of the Jersey Shore. Uh, I had forged a bit of a relationship with some of the Blue Claws on air guys, particularly uh, Neil Solons, who's now with the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, he was one of my sources when I, I did my graduate thesis on PR techniques of minor league baseball teams. And I, I did that on purpose. I, I realized the full-time jobs in sports were mostly in hockey and baseball. And you often did sales and or media relations in addition to the games. And that was really the job. The on-air is the, the carrot they dangle to get you to do 15 other jobs for no money. And I said, how can I maximize my chances? And uh, I got a chance to go to graduate school for free. It was all paid for. And I made money as a grad assistant 
I got to still call more college games and uh, practice doing games more, which is the best way to get better. And then I got to introduce myself to all of these decision makers uh, through this you know, effort to try to pin down the best universal principles of PR that work in minor league baseball. So I'd come out with that working knowledge. I'd forge these relationships, uh, and it worked. Uh, I, I got to learn quite a bit that I implemented for years. I got to meet guys like Neil that helped connect me with the radio station folks into that producing role with some modest uh, fill-in studio responsibilities on the air. Uh, and that also led to the next year when I was the number two announcer with the Wilmington Blue Rocks. I, I had a similar dynamic where I connected with some of their folks, and then their number two role came open, uh, and I was able to slide in uh, to, to that position. So it, it, it's it amazes me. It's something I hear on your podcast and, and in the stories of so many in this industry, the varied paths that lead us to where we go. Uh, it seems like you have a very – analytical way of processing things, probably a right-brained person. Do you feel like the analytical side of your thought process helped you to carefully plot out your decision-making as you tried to build your career? Uh, yes, and but a lot of that was, you know, learning by failing first. I, I think that narrowed down over time. I, I think in truth, when you first start, all of us need to cast as wide a net as possible. And you begin with the areas that you think you have the highest chance of success. But uh, I, I used to keep a stack of all the rejection letters. You know, when I first started applying for jobs in the industry, junior hockey jobs and you know, Nebraska uh, Division II sports positions and uh, Minnesota and Texas and New Mexico, everywhere. I, at one point, I think at the apex, it was somewhere north of 500. Uh, it, and pretty much all of them, with limited exception, that was the only communication I got. I, I got no phone call or email or I applied for this posting that I saw and I got, thank you, but we went with someone else. Uh, but I do think that that made me better. Uh, I, I learned over the course of time to be a little more deliberate with how I phrase things, with the researching I did in advance. Uh, and, and I think all of that did lead to uh, narrowing down the field of where and when to apply. Uh, but it, you know, we're, for all of us, when you're trying to first get beyond that catch-22 of uh, you need to have experience to get the job, but how do you get the job with no experience? It's There is no right answer. That's a question I get from young announcers all the time. That what do you recommend I do? What's the best way? What's the way? And There is no the way. You, you just try every way. And as you find some footing, it's kind of like climbing up an ice wall. You know, you, you think you have yourself positioned in the right spot, you're going to slip. You're going to fall down, but you have to just keep trying. And randomly, eventually, you're going to find some form of firmer ground that will enable you to get up. Uh, you know, when I first wanted to work in college football, I wrote every college football program, Division One, Two, Three, Junior College, within about an eight-hour driving radius of where I was living. It took three years of doing that. I got one offer to do Division Two games in Massachusetts. It would have been about a six-hour no-traffic drive for $50 a game before taxes with no travel expense, and they could do nothing on a trade basis or discount with lodging of any sort. Uh, and I had to decline it because at that stage of my life, it just I would lose too much money and too much time and take too much vacation. And it killed me to do that, but I, I had to. Uh, and then eventually I stumbled into doing Division II games on TV for an independent company that had a relationship with a conference. Uh, that I wrote for three years without response until one day he was in a pinch and needed a fill-in guy. Um, so yes and no. I would say I, I do, and I, I think over the course of time I've refined that, but I still think the, uh, the, the original efforts were not nearly as, uh, as well designed. It was kind of just shooting up in the air and hoping you hit a bird and it falls down. What's the Cliff Notes version from that point to when you got your first big break covering Princeton? Uh, well, Princeton came about, uh, I was doing college basketball already. I had secured the University of Delaware women's basketball job. Uh, this is shortly before Elena Deladon started playing there. They were very good, though. They were a nationally ranked caliber team. Uh, and I was already a game or two into the season, and I got a phone call from a, a guy who went to my college 10 years older than I am. 
but we were friendly, and he works in the area. His name is Ed Bankin. He covers the Eagles for WYP, KYW in Philly. Uh, and he said that he had given up doing Princeton women's basketball because he was moving full-time to Princeton men's ice hockey. And a friend of his, another alumnus of our university, was going to do women's hoops, but he ran a side company where he produced high school sporting events on local television. And apparently that company was going under, and his financial advisor was telling him he could not take this job because it had to be on the books as a 1099 position, and the money was the exact perfect amount that it would rupture the financial status of the bankruptcy of his other company. So on short, short notice, right before the season starting, he has to bail. And he asks, I need someone to cover. There's overlap with hockey. I need these two nights this week. Can you do it? And I said, yes. So I did those two games, and they liked it. I said, hey, uh, we have some more next week. Could you do those games? And eventually we learned that you know, the Ivy League schedule at the time and the CAA women's basketball schedule were very compatible. Ivy played Friday, Saturday. CAA played Thursday, Sunday. So it meant some crazy driving. He'd be at James Madison on a Thursday night in Virginia. He'd have to go to uh, Brown and and uh, and Yale up in Rhode Island and Connecticut and then shoot back down to UNC Wilmington in North Carolina for an afternoon tip on Sunday. But if you're crazy enough to make all those drives, you can work both gigs with minimal overlap and conflict. So that's how it started. And I did their women's games for three years, and then their men's announcer, who was the double-A Trenton Thunder man at the time, Dan Loney, uh, was facing a similar issue in his life to what I had later. He was uh, welcoming children to the world, and he had to make a choice, baseball or doing the college sports. He chose baseball. He stepped down that June, and they called me and asked, uh, we want to move you to the men's side. And uh, that first year, they won six games. Uh, they became the first team to lose to Division II Chaminade of the Maui Invitational in years. But I had an amazing time. I made some great friendships. And that team got really darn good, and in a short span, they were a bucket away from beating a Final Four Kentucky team in the NCAA tournament. Uh, and then that's when I got my first major exposure. They beat Harvard on a last-second shot in a one-game playoff to, to make the big dance. And uh, that clip of, of the audio from my call led SportsCenter for 24 hours. I had a handful of NBA guys that had reached out that were very complimentary of it, uh, and I think that helped a lot in getting the Q factor up that enhanced my candidacy for other jobs. Even though you said the schedule even though you said the schedule worked out, I'm sure there were some tough moments where it was very close to not working out. Maybe you had to violate every traffic law in the book to get somewhere. Can you share some of those stories? Yeah, probably the uh the most I guess there are two most extreme ones. Um one, uh, they were playing at Hofstra, and it seemed like annually the Hofstra game was in February, and it was accompanied by the worst snowfall of the year. And uh, the state highways, the Garden State Parkway in New Jersey, was closed. It was deemed too dangerous to travel. Uh, so I couldn't go the night before. It was already closed. So the next morning it was supposed to open up at 9 a.m. Uh, this is before smartphones, so you weren't really able to check things on the go all that well. Uh, so I tried to get on the parkway, and uh, very shortly thereafter, I was pulled over and told to get off the highway immediately, and we had to short notice find someone to fill in. Um, I also had an incident going from a game at Cornell in Ithaca, driving to Northeastern in Boston. It was a Saturday night game going to a Sunday afternoon game, and the snow was so horrendous. I was an hour and a half, but maybe 20 miles into the trip. I said, I, I got to pull over, just stop at a hotel for the night, and and drive the rest of it in the morning. So I get off based upon a sign that said, hotel, this exit. I get off the road. There's a tractor trailer with its hazards on that stopped. It's a two-lane road, one lane each way, and uh, there are cones set up around the tractor trailer. So I'm going barely more than idle speed, and a car that I did not see behind the tractor trailer emerges, comes out, and floors it. I mean, it, angry driver, probably going 45, you know, on, on the very dangerous road. Uh, I swerve to try to avoid the driver, and as I drive off the road proper onto the shoulder, what I didn't realize, the snow and the cold had created a thin layer of ice over a ditch. My front right tire, the car weight is so significant, breaks the ice, and my car tips. Now I have flowing, running water from this ditch entering my car through the passenger side floor. Uh, thank goodness there was a cop there with the tractor trailer that had set up 
the flares and the cones and everything else and saw this idiot that drove at me, pulled them over, issued them a ticket. Uh, I was able to get a tow truck just about immediately. He said that night it was about a three-hour wait because of the volume of accidents due to weather. Uh, but he saw my circumstances, and he was kind enough to help with that. Uh, I was then so wired, I couldn't imagine going to sleep. And he asked, why were you getting off here when I described where I was going? I told him about the hotel, and he laughed. He said, they should take that sign down. That hotel's been closed for two years. So there was no hotel. Uh, so I wound up just driving through the night anyway. And uh, my bigger concern, I was working for the New York Yankees at the time. I get back on that Monday. Uh, I'm flying to Tampa to go uh, cover a Yankees fantasy camp. I'm going to leave my car in the garage at Yankee Stadium because we're getting a car service to the airport. Well, during that time, it's going to get warmer. So all this water that it's seeped into my car had frozen. There's ice all over the uh, the floor of my passenger side of the car. When that thaws, when I'm gone, there's going to be mold. It's going to be awful. Uh, and the girl I was dating at the time actually had a great idea to put baking soda all over it to absorb the moisture and the odor. And uh, thank goodness it worked because otherwise – I, I probably would have had to uh, have a major cleaning job on the car. I think it's my worst nightmare to go off the road and into open water, even if it's just a little bit. That would be an absolutely petrifying moment. It was uh, it was pretty terrifying. And honestly, my greatest fear, I knew I would be okay, and I didn't really care about my car all that much. I really thought, am I going to be able to make the game? The game is t- tomorrow afternoon. Am I going to be able to get there? That was my greatest fear, and thank goodness I was able to. It's time to talk about STAA. When I decided to move to the Twin Cities, I knew we would be taking a big pay cut. My wife and I closely examined our finances before we moved, knowing that we needed to cut expenses. One of the expenses I never even considered cutting was my membership to STAA. In fact, I made the decision to prepay a year out while I was still making decent money to make sure that I didn't miss a day of membership for STAA. In my opinion, it's that valuable. One of the reasons that it's so valuable, the job listings that get sent, sometimes daily, sometimes weekly, depending on the season, but for example, the last couple of exclusive to members job lead emails have included NCAA Division II football and basketball jobs, minor league baseball jobs, several sports anchor jobs in mid and medium sized markets, and Several internships for those who are looking to just enter the industry. John Chalestic, the owner of STAA, is often the first person to know about openings, and I know of nobody who does a better job of compiling a higher number of quality openings. If you've been on the fence thinking about joining STAA, I would highly recommend taking the leap. If you visit stawatalent.com slash score. Not only will you support this show by helping me earn a small commission at no extra cost to you, but you will receive a free ebook by John Chalesnik, The Smart Way to Get a Broadcasting Job, A Complete Guide to Cold Contacting Employers. It's 17 pages of tips to get the attention of people making hiring decisions. Many of those tips I've used to get freelance work here in the Twin Cities. Just visit stawatalent.com slash score or click the Join STAA link in the show notes. You'll help your own career while supporting this podcast. It's a win-win situation. Now back to John Sadak. Calling games for an Ivy League school, did you ever feel extra pressure to sound smarter than the average broadcaster knowing that your audience is highly intelligent? Maybe that's not as big a deal for an astrophysics fan like yourself, but did you ever adjust your call because of your audience? No, I, I never really thought of that. I think basketball fans are basketball fans. And uh, I think knowing the history of the program, uh, that's something that I tried to soak up as much as I reasonably could, understanding that there's no way I could ever possess the same depth that you know, a 40-year fan of Princeton basketball would have. Uh, but I would try to engage people that were familiar with that background and that community as often as I could, uh, to, to learn about it, to be able to reference it at certain points. Uh, but I think you know, for the most part, when, when people were tuning in, they wanted to know about that game, that moment. Uh, and just like any other fan, you know, say the damn score, right? That, that's uh, the number one most important thing. Give me the nuts and bolts of what's happening and, and fill me in, paint a word picture for the game itself. And I, no, I never really thought of that in any way. 
You're a better man than I. I think I would have been worried talking to Ivy Leaguers with my little Morningside College degree. Anyway, eventually you made your way to doing national work for Westwood One and CBS. How did you get from Princeton and Delaware to getting plucked up by the networks? Uh, well, Westwood One was my first break, and uh, Howie Denneroff, who I know you've had on the program before, uh, was a, a godsend for me. Uh, I wrote him off and on for 18 months to two years um, before I got much response, and then even beyond then, more traction. Um, and by the time he listened to a tape, I realized uh, that he he insisted on having a partner on any tape that he would consider for basketball. Uh, particularly because in his highest level games, working in the tournament, you're going to have a partner. It's going to be a partner with a pretty big name and resume that's going to need more space than most on the radio, and he needs to hear how you handle that. Um, he also wants to hear how you do your live reads. The commercial aspect is very important. Uh, so eventually he would ask for a full game, non-edited, that would have all those working pieces within. Uh, and that was the one wrinkle at first is that uh, – my first two years doing Princeton men's basketball, I did not have a regular partner. It was occasional, generally speaking, home games only. And then I lucked into uh, Noah Savage, who was a senior captain my first year doing their men's games, had interest in announcing. Uh, he actually just made his national debut with ESPN this year. Uh, and Noah was awesome. Uh, was just great dude. And I was finally able to send a tape that had that in it. Um, I also sent a, I, I, at that point, had not hooked onto a football job. I was trying desperately. I did it in college, so I had undergraduate tape, but I wanted something more updated. Uh, so I went to the University of Delaware. Uh, they, at the time, would annually play Division II Westchester. And Delaware is an FCS program that was drawing 22000 a game. They would always open with Westchester, and Westchester did not have a radio station that would travel. So the visiting booth in the very undersized uh, press box at Delaware Stadium would be unoccupied. And I was able to do a mock game with a friend of mine uh, that I did college games with on our, our, our alma mater's college radio station. That was the football tape that I sent. And uh, he liked it. I, my first test game was uh, an Elite Eight women's basketball game that he liked. Uh, the next year I was told I would probably get some football, and it eventually happened at a later stage of the year. I was supposed to do Boise State TCU. And probably three weeks, maybe a month beforehand, I got a call. We're, we're going to change your game. There are two games we're airing that week. And uh, Boise, where, the, where our booth is, it's inside of a 20. It's not a great sight line. you got to combat the blue turf. The support people that we'd have locally, they don't travel. A spotter or stats person, uh, we don't know them as well. So we're going to put you on another game with schools you're probably more familiar with. It's drivable, not a flight. It's a better broadcast view. We're going to send you our Sunday night football producer and analyst, James Lofton, is going to be your partner. We're going to send you an NFL stat guy, an NFL spotter, to set you up to have the best possible first game. And that game turned out to be Penn State, Nebraska, which that year was the, the year of the scandal. And that was the week that Joe Pa was fired. And it went from we're giving you this game that's supposed to be easier to make it a, a smooth, effortless transition for you to instead all eyes are on this game. And, and if you recall the timeline of it, it was still thought when I had been switched to this game that he was going to coach that game. That was senior day. That was their home finale. And I was petrified with the thought of this is my debut, and if he does coach this game, what's my final call? Because it, everything's still – in flux, it's still fluid then. We don't know. We, we know what these accusations are. We don't know what he knew or didn't know. So if they win, is my call into the sunset goes one of college football's legends? Is it the scandal? Because five years from now, there might not have been a scandal. You don't know. Um, and, and in a way, thank goodness for my own uh, nerves that he was let go because I, I, I don't know how I would have handled that at the time. Uh, that would have been something that uh, would have thrown me for a loop, and I would have had a long dialogue with our producers about in advance of it. Uh, but but that led to uh, more quasi-regular football work and men's basketball work, and eventually I became their lead college football guy. Uh, I added college basketball in the NCAA tournament uh, on the men's and women's side. Uh, I got the women's Final Four. I moved to the NFL side with Westwood One. They've been incredibly generous and good to me. Uh, and right around that same timeline, I began television-wise with ESPN. 
Uh, I was offered a spring football game at the University of Virginia. They liked it. Uh, I got two football games that fall. They liked those, but I was still on the outside of a regular rotation. This was the early stage of, of ESPN3. And I was called and asked, have you done soccer? And, and I did for our college radio station. I had never done it on TV. I hadn't done it in years. Uh, but I don't need to give all the details to them. I just said, yes, I've done soccer. So they assigned me to soccer, and, and I apparently did very well. And they liked it. And the main decision maker with them at the time uh, loved soccer. I didn't know that. But he, he loved soccer. He was an avid fan of watching soccer. He coached his own kids' youth teams. And I really believe the fact that I was prepared, I cared, I delivered on those soccer games helped me dramatically because all of a sudden I started picking up more football and some basketball events. Uh, and then any time they needed help with soccer, I was, I guess, basically the de facto number two soccer guy for ESPN3. And that opened up a whole lot of other doors. Uh, I got a handful of ESPNU, ESPN News games. Uh, I was probably on the edge of cracking that rotation. Uh, and then I got a call from CBS Sports Network asking if I had interest in doing basketball. Uh, the ESPN3 work would basically end when conference play began. The CBS work would do the inverse, so I could do both. I didn't have a non-compete. I was a freelance employee. Uh, so I did mostly women's basketball. That went well. And the next fall, a football spot opened. I was offered football, and I I moved over to the men's basketball side with them, and, and they've been great to me, and they've been my main employer ever since. Let's go backwards to that Nebraska and Penn State game. I personally am a Husker fan from Nebraska, and I vividly remember watching that game. I don't really want to get deep into the scandal or anything. We all know it was a horrid ordeal. But how did you go about weaving that story into your broadcast, or did you address it much at all? Well, I think you have to address it. You know, you're not doing your job if you if you don't mention it. And I think you you address it as how it relates to the game. You know, I'm not an investigative reporter. I'm the play-by-play announcer. But that had an effect on the entire tailgating scene, uh, on the uh, emotional response of the stadium to good or bad plays. And I think that's how we wove it in the most. You gave the relevant facts as they were known at that time, uh, and you described what you saw. So when we did our scene set, uh, that was addressed right at the top. And the the biggest, uh, I guess, direction of it for us was how we all as a group took it in, walking through the parking lot, the, the mixed vibe. You know, normally a senior day game, conference game, uh, you would see a, a much uh, more frivolous, loose, joyous occasion. And instead, there were some that, that looked to be uh, kind of commiserating. There were some that looked to be shamed. There were some that looked angry. There were some that, that were still partying as if it were any other game day. And describing that dichotomy of the, the wide emotional spectrum of the parking lot and the, the indecision and uncertainty of those that were in attendance, I think that's what our job was. Your, your job is to transport the listener to that experience. You want the person consuming the game to feel like they're there. So tell them what it's like to be there, you know, and, and describe as the game wore on, you could feel and see that the crowd started to sway back into a regular football game to, to whatever extent it was possible in the immediacy of, of what was happening. And of course, you know, not to be lost in all this, there's a, there's horrible tragedies on the human level that occurred that are incredibly significant. Uh, but for our role in chronicling the game, those that are tuning in are not tuning in to hear our take. We're not talk show hosts. We're not offering opinion. Uh, and they're, they're tuning in to listen to the game itself. So I, I think that's, that's how we did it. We did have a dialogue about that. You have to address it. Let's address it up front. If there are moments in the game that seem to be relevant to that and you need to bring it up again, then do so. But if not, then don't. And I think the fact that the game went as it did probably made it the, the easiest for me, uh, you know, from my selfish personal perspective as, as this novice announcer, you know, on this stage with this level of, of a game. Um, but I, I think that was the core of it was just describe what you see. Take the listener to that realm, to that stadium, to that environment at that time. And 
I, I think you need to acknowledge it, but then I, I think you need to call the game. And I think that's true of, of anything, of any circumstance that happens leading into a game. Your job as a play-by-play person is to give the play-by-play and the, the relevant facts there, too. You work for Howard Denneroff at Westwood One, who is like the play-by-play whisperer with his expertise of the craft and ear for detail. What type of feedback system do you receive working for Westwood One, or do you get much at all? No, he does. Yeah, he'll tell you what he likes and what he doesn't like. And I think earlier in my career, I heard a lot more. Um, and I, I think that's inherent some to uh, familiarity, you know, with each other, what he wants, you know, how I sound and, and adjusting. You know, the number one thing you want to do is, is please your decision maker. And it, I think gets ratcheted up another level. I would agree with you. He has an outstanding ear. The the most in-depth, helpful criticism that I've ever received was the first criticisms that I ever got from him. Uh, And, yeah, he was very positive, but he gave me a few things. This is what I would suggest. And my peers in the industry that have written him before and since all come back with the same thing. yeah, among the major networks, I've worked for Fox, I've worked for ESPN, I've worked for CBS, uh, and I've worked for Westwood One. I, I think Howie probably gives you the most specific to you accurate feedback that you'll ever get. Uh, CBS also does an excellent job, uh, and they are very hands-on. With ESPN, I, I love my ESPN experience, and the producers that I dealt with uh, would help me when and how they could. Uh, but I was so low on the totem pole. I think their inventory of games is so significant. Uh, I remember the first football game I worked for them. The, the moment my headset hit the table and we were off the air, I turned to my partner and I said, now what? And he started laughing. He was, now what? Well, what do you mean? What are you talking about? And I said, well, how do, how does this work? Like, do, do they give us a report? Do they email us? Do they call us? Like, how do we know, you know, where we stand, where we need to get better? And he laughed and he put his arm around my shoulder. He said, John, I've been doing these games for about 10 years, going back to the ESPN regional television, the ESPN Plus days. I've been called twice. Both times I screwed up. Bad. Real bad. <laughs> so if you don't get a phone call, you did well. They give you another game, they like you. Uh, and, and that was pretty much true over my, my time doing those games, where with CBS I get uh, more regular feedback, uh, particularly in the football season, our entire crew will. Uh, and with Westwood One, Howie is just amazing. No news is good news, I suppose. And I think his point is, is probably very true. If they keep hiring you and giving you games, then they still like you. The moment they stop calling you to do games, they don't like you anymore. We actually got connected for this podcast because you mentioned that you enjoyed the Howie Rose episode a few shows back on Twitter. What influence did he have on you, and what is the best way to find mentors to help grow in the business? Uh, well, Howie Rose is someone that I listened to growing up. Uh, the, the favorite sports team of my childhood uh, is the 1993-94 New York Rangers and his famous Matteau, Matteau, Stefan Matteau call uh, on the radio covering the Rangers. Uh, I, I've never worked NHL hockey, uh, and I, I think in this industry, uh, as you move along, you know, people will ask all the time, who's your favorite team, Who's your, who do you root for? And I, I honestly don't root for anyone at this stage team-wise. I, I do think you come across good people, whether they're uh, players, coaches, executives, other broadcasters, anybody. Uh, and and you, you root for good people to do well when it's not relevant to, you know, the specific game that you're covering or the work that you're doing. I think you need to remain objective when it comes to that. Uh, but because I've never worked in the NHL, there's there's something to you don't see how the sausage is made. Um, I'm sure there are some some negative elements uh, that if I were to totally draw back the curtain uh, might change my perspective. But I, I still very much view the game through the lens of my childhood. Uh, you know, the, those those moments and his calls still ring to me the same way they did then. And he's a, a friend of a friend. Uh, I was connected with him last year when uh, I was in pursuit of a the New York Knicks radio job. And yeah, he had worked for MSG uh, covering Islanders hockey for a long, long time on TV. Uh, some of those same decision makers were involved in the Knicks process. And I was connected uh, with Howie to get feedback on my stuff and to, to get a heads up. And 
and he was excellent uh, with what he offered to me. He was very generous with his time. Uh, we've stayed in touch uh, since then, uh, and it, it was a real kick just to, to be able to correspond with him, you know, at some point. Uh, and I would occasionally write him, you know, when I would hear something during a Mets broadcast that uh, would, would jar something to mind. Um, and he's one of a, a number of folks who have helped me over the course of the years that have offered feedback on my material, that have uh, suggested directions to go. Uh, I, I think I always say this to, to younger voices that contact me. I do think contacting announcers has its merit and its helpfulness. Uh, it will make your sound better if you constructively include the uh, the advice that, that's given to you by people that you respect. I, and I, I think that's one of the core underscored elements. The people that you contact – really should be people that you enjoy, that you respect, that you think are good, uh, and, and write to them, you know, with that that perspective. Hey, I, I'm a fan of your work. Uh, I like X, Y, or Z. I'd love your feedback. Uh, and I always tell younger announcers when, when I'm asked to offer feedback to them, just because I say I like or don't like something doesn't mean that's true. This is totally subjective. Uh, and what I would urge you to do is contact as many people as possible and to incorporate what you like selectively, what you agree with that should be changed in your call. Uh, and if you steadfastly believe, you know, I like this person, I think they're really good, but I disagree with this point, then stay by you know your own values and who you are. At the same time, if you hear the same criticism consistently, I would strongly urge you to consider changing. Uh, and moreover, while I do think that can make for a better demo or a better call and make you a better broadcaster, and there's a lot of weight and merit to that, the number one people that you should be contacting are decision makers at networks and with teams. And it's very hard to find out who those decision makers are uh, and the best ways to contact them. Some like email. Some would like you to mail them something. Some want you to call them. Uh, some want you to go through an intermediary of someone that, that they are already familiar with, and that will give you a, a better entree. And a lot of that is pure hunt and peck luck. And you're going to screw up, and you're going to do something wrong along the way. And that's okay. you got to just keep doing it. But those are the people that can actually get you jobs, and those are the people whose influence matters the most. And I think within our industry, it's also true that uh, – Many of those decision makers are very informed. Uh, they have a great ear. You know, Howie's an excellent example of that. And there are some decision makers in some places that don't really have a great ear, that make hiring decisions, and you listen to demos, you're like, ah, that doesn't entirely make sense because it's beyond the demo. The, the demo is only a small piece of the, the entire puzzle. And I think that's what's get, what gets lost a lot on all of us when we started, me too, I, I was very much a victim to it. You can't have a terrible demo. If you sound horrible on your demo, you will not get the job. But if you have a very good demo, that doesn't mean anything. There are a lot of very good demos. There are a lot of very good announcers. I often make the analogy to uh, to the tennis world. I like tennis, but for the average person, if you watch a match between the 47th-ranked player in the world and the 101st-ranked player in the world, you would have no idea who is who unless the numbers are next to their name or you just see one person is winning and you would imagine that person is higher ranked. That's it. Now, the, the tennis expert might be able to pick up on that. You probably would see the subtlety of it. Even if their faces are blacked out, they can't, you know, by body makeup, recognize who they are. Just by form of play could pick that out. And I feel like that's also true within sports casting. The elite of us are elite. You know, the Al Michaels of the world, the Jim Nances, they're amazing. They're, they're a higher level of announcer. Their skill set is truly unique, and they have a sound and a cadence uh, and an effort that is truly different. The rest of us are largely interchangeable. If you took the 51st best sportscaster in the world by a, a wide opinion poll and put their tape up against the 150th, is there really that much of a difference? Purely subjective. Regionalism, the, 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 the pitch of the sound, maybe, but we're all pretty much vanilla. You need to find a way to separate yourself beyond that. Uh, and that's where finding mentors is a, is a great help. 
Uh, but the biggest thing is trying to separate yourself in a different way and trying to connect with decision makers. That was an extremely insightful answer. Preparing for this interview, I listened to your appearance on another podcast, Play by Playcast with Joel Godet. A great show, by the way, and I encourage everyone to check it out when they're done with this podcast. But you mentioned in his show that you still feel insecurity and self-doubt in regards to your ability every day, even though you've achieved a really high level of success. How does that drive you, and what are the positives and negatives of those feelings? Yeah, I, I think you need to have a bit of a healthy fear. You know, I, I think that butterfly in the stomach moment that you should have when you put on a headset before a game, I, I feel like it gives me energy. I feel like it makes me prepare. Uh, I, I, I think we're always in search, this Moby Dick-like pursuit of the perfect broadcast, which uh, beyond its nobility is also impossible. There is no perfect broadcast. But, you know, talk to... Costas or Breen or any of the elite, you know, best of the best in this industry. And I'm sure if you ask them, is there any call you'd like to have back? Is there any call that you'd like to change? They would all say yes. And they would all probably point to moments that you and I would readily recognize and love and say, you know, I wish I had added. I wish I subtracted. I, I wish my tone was more. And I, I think that's part of the fun of this industry is that you're always looking for something that is truly unattainable, but the pursuit of that is what makes us better, and it's the fun. It's 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 why this is so engaging. Uh, to me, broadcasting games, the actual art of it, is about humanity. It's about the connections between people. It's humanizing this event, and the sports are supposed to be this analogy of life where there are rules, right? You know, there are rules built into the sport. There are officials there set to uh, to uh, make sure that they're adhered to and followed properly, but they're also human and they make their own mistakes. And that's why I think sport in many ways is a great analogy for life. You can do all the right things, you can prepare the right way, and you can still fail. But that doesn't mean that you fail just because you lost the game. It's the, the spirit of that competition. And I think similarly for the broadcaster, if, if you ever lose that edge, if if you go on with such a swagger and an arrogance that uh, you are already at the highest possible level, I have to think that affects the on-air product. I have to think that the listener, the viewer can tell when when you reach that Orson Welles-like status. You've already achieved the greatest of the great. Uh, you, you believe you're fantastic. How do you move beyond that? Uh, I think you need to stay hungry. You know, as cliche as that sounds, I think uh, most cliches are born because they're true, and that's the way that you perform, is you have to still have that, that thirst, that yearning. Um, it, it becomes tricky as life evolves. It becomes tricky if you want to have a family and uh, you want to spend time with those that you love because you're you're always in pursuit of doing games. Uh, and I, I think to that end, it, it expands in every way beyond just your prep of a specific game. It goes to not saying no to assignments. It goes to continuing to push your boundaries, doing sports or mediums that you're unfamiliar with, or uh, working with, with networks or partners that you, you haven't been with before, uh, trying to spread your wings as, as wide as you can to try to find the best version of yourself, to try to find where your, your sound works the best. Uh, but I, I think you need that edge. And it doesn't mean that, uh, and perhaps the way I phrased it when I was on that podcast, I'm not sitting there at every waking moment thinking, oh, I screwed this up, oh, this call is bad. That's not the case. I think when you go on the air, you just do the game. Um, but in retrospect, when I listen back to myself, I hear probably a hundred things that I would change. And and in my mind, that's the one professional regret that I have uh, is I've always been like that. Uh, in the early stage of my broadcast career, I was hesitant to be uber aggressive uh, on a big, big level because I felt like I needed more reps because I constantly felt like, well, this isn't truly representative of my full potential. I need to do more games to reach that point, which is true, but it's also true of all of my peers. And that's what I don't think I recognized as readily then. Despite the flaws, 
number one, the people that listen don't always hear the flaws that you do because you're familiar, more familiar with your own weaknesses than anyone else can be, especially at first blush. And I, I should have uh, been more uh, commanding and aggressive in those pursuits. I always felt like I don't want to be the used car salesman. I don't want to be the slimy guy selling myself. I don't want to be constantly schmoozing and or uh, making for awkward banter or inconveniencing others as I'm trying to advance my career. I, I've swayed on that a bit. Now, I'm not saying to be a used car salesman. I think if you harken back to the words I said earlier, you should be contacting people both of their own character and ability and the methods that you do because you appreciate, respect, and enjoy them. Uh, but I am now at a point in life where I would rather I was too aggressive in pursuit of a job and that injured it that I wasn't aggressive enough. I can live with you try too hard and that cost you a chance at the gig rather than you didn't quite do enough and you might have had a chance of getting it, but you fell short. Uh, and, and if I could go back to my younger self, that's the one thing that I would change. And I think all of that spills from that, that same thought process of constantly pushing yourself, constantly expecting and trying to achieve more. We'll finish up with some less serious questions. You worked in Scranton, PA for many years, and I know nothing about Scranton coming from the Midwest except for what I've seen on the show The Office. What is Scranton's relationship with the show The Office? Do they like it? Do they not like it because they make fun of them? How does that dynamic work? I, I think on the whole, everybody loves it. And uh, the entire cast came out to the ballpark well, during my tenure with the team there to have a, a mini reunion. And that was one of the most uh, capacity crowds that we enjoyed at the stadium, uh, was to see everybody there at PNC Field. Uh, the reality of Scranton versus what's portrayed on the show, there there is a big difference there. Now, a lot of the scenic that you see, especially at the intro, that is Scranton. Uh, but, you know, for instance, where the Dundies were, that there is no chilies in Scranton, so you, you can't experience that. They do <laughs> reference places that really exist, but the reality of them versus how they're portrayed isn't quite spot on. Uh, but I love that show. Uh, I was a huge fan even before I, I had gone, to be honest, uh, I mean, that that's a big part of what piqued my interest. Uh, I, I had always had an eye on that job. I, I grew up a Yankee fan. I worked in the Yankees front office. Uh, that was the closest I could possibly be to my parents and my childhood home and my wife's parents and her childhood home at the AAA level. Uh, and I think when the office came out, that almost allowed me to double down on my interests because it, if there was any chance that Jim, Michael, and Pam would be there, I would go nuts. Did you ever meet any of the actors from the show through broadcasting? No, sadly, because, uh, you know, commensurately to have the stadium available for when they were going to do the reunion, it meant the team was on the road. So I was away with the team uh, broadcasting somewhere in the International League while they were all in Scranton at PNC Field. So uh, sadly, that did not happen. Last office question. Can you find references to Dunder Mifflin in Scranton? Uh, there actually is a sign related to Dunder Mifflin Paper Company that was on the route to the uh, the gym we would take our daughter when she was two years old, and I would giggle every time I saw it. <laughs> you mentioned one already by going off the road into water in a snowstorm, but what are other broadcast horror stories where something happened that was mortifying at the time but you can laugh at now? Oh, there have been a bunch of things. Uh, we had a banner that probably cost somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 to 700 bucks, which was a lot for us for a college radio station. And we would hang up when we did games. Uh, went to the Division Three Women's Final Four in 1998, and we had to hang the banner on the wall behind us because of uh, NCAA-related signage on the tables we were working on. Uh, somebody stole it during the course of the game. And uh, I, I was read the riot act by my boss uh, afterward, but there's no way I could call the game on the floor and look back at the wall at the same time. Uh, but they so somewhere in America that that sign existed, probably in some frat house at some point. Um, that same trip, uh, we first get there. Uh, we did not travel with the team in order to save money uh, for the radio station, so we'd have a couple of nights uh, fewer in the hotel. Uh, we had issues with our flight there. We were supposed to fly from Philadelphia 
to Newark to connect to go to Maine. Our first flight got canceled. We had to take a shuttle van. We missed the, the connecting flight, had to take a later flight. Uh, got to our hotel the next morning. Uh, we were told the bus was leaving at uh, whatever it was, noon, 1 o'clock. Uh, we get there 20 minutes in advance. The bus is already gone. We were given the wrong time. We have to cab. So we get in the cab and we ask, hey, uh, we'd like to go to the, the University of Southern Maine basketball gym for the women's final four. So he drives us to the gym. He lets us off. There's nobody in the parking lot. We go inside and there's a bunch of dudes playing a shirt skins game on the floor. And then we realize there are two University of Southern Maine campuses, the Portland campus and the Gorham campus. And the driver had no idea where the women's final four was. We were at the wrong gym. Uh, we wound up getting to the correct gym about two minutes before airtime. We were plugged in and, and connected and able to do the, the short pregame show that we had. Uh, also had an incident uh, every year that Delaware would play Drexel. Women's basketball it was a rivalry uh, fairly nearby. Drexel's only in Philly. And three consecutive years, uh, a fellow announcer would disconnect us during our postgame interview with the head coach. Uh, the the two phone jacks were immediately adjacent to each other. Uh, they would often be set up before we'd get there and for some reason would plug into the left uh, when we were on the left and we'd plug into the right when they were on the right. And every year he would go over and pull the wrong cord without even looking. And the first time that happened, totally innocent mistake. You get it. You're frustrated, but you, you understand. The next year, as I arrive and we engage in our pleasantries, I say, hey, you know, this year, Please don't pull the cord on us. I'm just joking with him. And what does he do? Inadvertently pulls the cord on us. And then the third year, I make light of it again in advance. And as he goes over, I'm furiously waving at him. He smiles and waves at me and without looking, reaches down and pulls us off the air again. And uh, he's a sweet guy. He really did not mean to do it. But uh, it drove our coach incredibly crazy and then we had to deal with the aftermath of that because it took another you know minute and a half to get replugged in reconnected get back on the air again um but yeah there have been so many moments like that that have happened over the course of the years who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to on an off day both nationally and potentially and a few under the radar guys that we may not have heard of uh well to be blatantly honest in the last year Unless I'm watching to prepare for a game or it's a specific game that I have a real interest in for some reason, um, my listening and watching of other announcers has gone down a lot. Um, I, I did it a lot more earlier in my life because I, I wanted to you know, pick up ideas from different people. I, I think when we start, we all basically do bad impressions of the people that we like, and then we pick up nuanced pieces from others that we enjoy, and then we arrive at our own sound. And... Uh, I, I actually try to avoid listening as critically to, to try to improve my own craft through that way these days. And I, I try to be with my family as much as I can. Now, that said, uh, I think Al Michaels is the best television football announcer of our generation and perhaps of all time. I can't really speak to the full depth of, of those a generation ago. I, I didn't watch them nearly as much. Uh, but he has such an immaculate feel for how and when to begin a story, how to integrate it, how to still react, how to give space for Collingsworth, who's, I think, an outstanding analyst. Um, I, I feel like he's just he's putting on a clinic every time he does a game. He is so on it, and yet he never sounds hurried. He, he's always working at the right pace. His pitch, his tone, his volume, his intensity matches the moment so exquisitely well. I, I just think he's fantastic um I, I love the term variation of doc emmerich I, I i love the the uh, emotional vigor that he approaches the game with the detail that he's able to pinpoint uh the way that i think he can bring non-hockey fans into a sport that, that many view as niche you know it's it, it it's a sport that's not readily understood by a lot of the viewing public and yet his call alone can kind of uh uh make for pure entertainment, can can translate the game in a way that that allows the non-fan to access it uh, in, in a very direct uh, manner. Um, I love Mike Green on basketball. I love Ken Calabro on basketball, his radio and his uh, television call. I, I think they're excellent. I love Ian Eagle, uh, who's been helpful to me. I, he's 
been able to give me feedback on my work, uh, to give me career advice at times. Uh, he is hilarious. I, I think he does the best job uh, among anyone in our industry right now of integrating fun, vibrant personality while still giving the game its due. You know, there, there are some among us who uh, can be very funny, and, but, but sometimes it becomes a distraction. It becomes more about them than it does the game. Ian is, like, right on that line all the time, and he knows where to pivot. And it's just an innate skill that I, I don't think you can teach. Uh, but he is a, an amazing, an amazing talent. Um, in terms of more under the radar, um, in today's world, I'm not sure how many really are under the radar. Um, if you want to say, use that term, I don't know that enough people nationally realize how good Ryan Radke is, who is the main college football voice on Westwood One now. Uh, he did University of Nevada sports for a long time. Uh, he and I got a chance to chat when I did a, a few television games uh, for Nevada basketball, and he was still their radio announcer. And we had a lot of mutual friends and um, mutual acquaintances, and we wound up in this divergent conversation for uh, probably an hour and a half, two hours uh, after uh, watching a practice together. Uh, he's a great dude. Uh, he's immensely talented, as prepared as they come. Um, I, I think even bigger things are going to come for him at some point. People are going to realize just how smooth and resonant and talented that he is. How would somebody reach out to you? Uh, I would say to shoot me a note on Twitter, uh, at John Sadak, J-O-H-N-S-A-D-A-K. And, uh, and I'm, I'm glad to talk to anybody. I, I'd probably get, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of five to sometimes 20 random contacts a month from people asking for tape feedback, for, for job ideas. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad to help as many as I can because people have helped me and still help me to this day. Once again, we're visiting with John Sadak of Westwood One and CBS Sports. And, John, thanks so much for coming on the show. You got it. Thank you, Logan. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of SayTheDamnScore.com. Also, please follow me on the social media outlet of your choice, especially on Twitter, where my name is Radio underscore Logan. Also, iTunes reviews, emails, or any other kind of honest feedback is greatly appreciated and helps me make the show better. Finally, please reach out to the guests of this show so they know you appreciate them sharing their stories on the podcast. As always, I'm Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more.